Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, we're speaking with Justin Boris, the CIO and founder of IBEX, a Denver-based investment firm with four niche strategies, one being Israel and fast-growing companies coming out of Israel, a micro-cap, um, a driverless car fund, and also a behavioral finance theme. The largest one of their themes is uh, the Lazarus Fund, which concentrates on Israeli-based companies and Israeli technology companies that may be listed around the world, both uh, listed and unlisted. That fund has returned more than 160% to investors' net of fees and charges, drive away, no more to pay uh, over the last five years. And that's a compound annual growth rate of 20%. So we think strategies like this in this niche area uh, are a real source of great value and very keen to talk to Justin and give you some insights of some of the areas they're focusing on. Hi, Justin. Welcome to Australia. It's great to be here. Hope you're enjoying your time here. We've turned on the morning, the weather for you this morning. That's great. And I've managed to be here three days, haven't gotten eaten by any crocodiles. So that's always helpful. Yes. Justin, perhaps you could give us a little bit of a background of your investment background uh, as a starting point for our listeners. Sure. Uh, I started my career after college at Bear Stearns, both in New York and London, uh, in investment banking and then private equity. I started a microcap investment fund, the basic premise of what am I going to know about Intel that 5,000 people a lot smarter than me don't already know. And if I call up Intel, I'm lucky to get the sixth vice president of investor relations on the phone. With microcaps, you're not getting inside information, but you're getting information that most people don't take the time to find out. Investment management has become a very lazy business. People want to sit at their desks, read a couple research reports, and then make a buyer or sell decision. In the microcap space, uh, there is no research, so you have to go out and uh, visit these companies and create the research on your own. So that's where I got my. And, so, and when you say microcap, how? What sort of size are you talking really about? Really, the smallest of the small, uh, sub three hundred million dollars in market capitalization. So if you think of the U.S. stock market, there's roughly ten thousand publicly listed companies. About half of them were 5,000 or less than 300 million. So while on CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, you hear about the same two or 300 companies, really there are thousands of companies that no one talks about, uh, but they make up the majority of the stock market. So your sort of premise there is that you're far more likely to have a, an efficient market at the top end where everyone's looking at it and making decisions with information, where at the, at the lower end, you know, you can add some real value and find some real hidden gems. Absolutely. It goes back to our primitive emotions through evolution. We like to be part of a crowd or a clan. So everybody likes to be in the same two or 300 stocks that everybody talks about and they read about and they see on TV. But the real opportunity, uh, I believe, is in the thousands of companies that uh, most people don't follow or spend a lot of time with. So, Justin, one of the themes... Um, that you have, and uh, we've been speaking to some of my clients with, is around this opportunity in Israel. Why why Israel? Yeah, Israel is, uh, to follow the microcap premise even further, 
It has all the upside of microcap stocks, um, underfollowed, orphaned, uh, not appreciated, but even more innovative businesses. Israel is one of the best performing stock markets in the world for the last 15 years. I think the best, except for uh, Mongolia and India. Uh, you have a thousand new companies starting in Israel every single year. You have 50 to 100 companies being acquired in Israel uh, every year by the likes of Facebook and Google and IBM and Amazon. So the smart money is in Israel buying companies left and right. And even Warren Buffett, who's always been a US-focused guy, uh, recently called Israel uh, among his favorite places in the world to invest. Yeah, I saw a quote from him recently where he talks about, you know, most people go to the Middle East looking for uh, oil. Uh, we, we came to the Middle East looking for brains, and that's why we went to, to Israel. And I think that kind of plays into that whole sort of knowledge economy, you know, the future and companies that are going to succeed are ones that are smart and it's not going to be so much a resource-led investment world but a, a knowledge-based uh, investment world. So, so why, why has Israel got these smart, why, why does it, how is it that they've got it but Syria or Egypt next door doesn't? I, I think there's a few things. One is the mandatory military service. Uh, at least in the United States, we go off at 18 years old to college or university to learn how to drink alcohol and have parties for the next four years. In Israel, they go straight to the military, where they're alerting to program or code or hack. Uh, really, in the uh, military, in the, the military, uh, uh, really sophisticated skills. And so, when they come out two or three or four years later, and then go into university, they already one are very mature. Two, they have a skill set where they know what they want to focus on, and I think they get a lot more out of the college experience. Uh, number two is the old saying. Necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, Israel is in a dangerous neighborhood. That's, that's no surprise. Uh, but for instance, uh, they, they've become very resourceful. Uh, no one would sell them, none of their neighbors would sell them fruits and vegetables. And by the time they got a fruit or a vegetable from a neighbor that would sell to them, it would most likely be spoiled. So here they had to develop fruits and vegetables or grow fruits and vegetables in a, in a, a desolate, awful climate. Uh, but that's where you get innovative, and they invented drip irrigation, Netafim, a company that sold a few years ago for over a billion dollars. So it turns out innovation also is uh, really good business. So they're growing their own fruit now. Got, now they're, they're one some. of the biggest exporters of fruits and vegetables okay. uh, through all the water and agriculture. And that's just one example of when you're this chipmunk in nature and you don't know where the attack is coming from, whether it's coming from the north, the west, the south, the east, uh, you're always on edge, you're always innovating. I compare it to the US, how innovative the United States was during the Cold War when we invented technologies like GPS because we wanted to take our spy satellites and be able to track nuclear submarines um, and we kept inventing. Uh, one could argue that that was the most innovative period in the United States' history. So when you're in a constant threat, um, the way to uh, survive really is to uh, create technologies and innovation to ensure your survival. Well, I think the you know that sort of plays into that you know Silicon Valley that evolution of you know Lockheed and a lot of the defense companies being situated out there and getting that talent coming out of that Stanford area. And that, you know, that led to really part of the genesis of that whole Silicon Valley thing, right? Yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley, uh, obviously some 
big successes have come from there. But I call them ice cream companies. They're nice to have, but they're not must-have businesses. So they're LinkedIn for babies, or Facebook for retired people, or an app that takes naked pictures of your girlfriend. I compare that to Israel, where they're mission-critical businesses or solving problems that haven't been addressed for 50, 100 years. It's a medical device company that's creating a solution for mm. a, a problem that no one's had a solution for for 100 years. And, uh, and, and that's what Israel is really good at, uh, solving big, big problems through technology. Uh, not nice to have businesses, but must have businesses. So give me an example of a success story or two that have come out of Israel and that sort of environment, other than the ones that you've said in the irrigation area and you've alluded to. Yeah, um, I, I can uh, tell you just a, a couple of examples. Um, first of all, in cybersecurity, uh, Israel is a superpower. 20% of the world's cybersecurity comes from Israel, uh, which is uh, quite remarkable that a company that I believe is one one hundredth of one percent of the world's population has 20% of cybersecurity. Um, but cybersecurity, we've all heard about a couple of hacking incidents, but I think we're in the top of the first inning. Nobody has died from hacking yet. Uh, as far as I know, and it hasn't really cost the economy billions and billions of dollars uh, in big, major incidents, uh, but it's only a matter of time. And uh, whether it's terrorists or other uh, people that use hacking um, to really try to destroy economies and lives, um, that's going to be a big problem, and Israel is really on the forefront of that. Uh, but more, even more recently, big success stories, Waze, uh, got acquired by Google for Waze over, came out of Israel, did it? Yeah, by over oh, wow. a billion dollars. Well, that's cool. I know I was in an Uber the other day, and um, you know, I was telling the guy, no, no, we'll go this way. And he said, no, no, I'll cut across this Waze. It's better. And I said, no, no, we'll go this way. And uh, we turned the corner, and we were just in a massive traffic jam, and Waze was taking us around there because there was a house on fire in Lane Cove. But uh, yeah, so yeah, Waze, Waze works. I, I, I tell people Waze is infallible. <laughs> I, I trust Waze with everything. I don't care how many times I've gone down a route if, if Waze tells me something. Uh, obviously, Mobileye, many people have heard about, that just got acquired by Intel for $15 billion. I don't know about that. Tell, tell us, what, what's Mobileye? Mobileye is leading uh, the world in driverless and autonomous driving technology. Uh, so a lot of the brains that are going to help cars go from uh, you driving the car yep. to the whole autonomous driving. And Intel realized we better get in this game and, and, and uh, paid $15 billion. And that's actually one industry that Israel is really leading the charge, the autonomous driving technology. We see that as a $7 trillion industry disruption, uh, it will be the largest technological revolution of our lifetimes, including the internet. Uh, it'll be a massive equivalent of a massive tax cut because people are going to save so much money on uh, uh, owning a car and maintenance and insurance and, and, and that kind of thing. But also from a safety perspective, in the United States about 35,000 people lose their lives a year in car accidents, not including all the people that are injured, and that will, by some estimates, go down to about 13 lives. And Israel has many, many companies. Um, Israel is not so good at coming up with the iPhone of cars, the winning car, 
but all the brains and the guts that have to go into these cars, uh, whether it's data, these cars are gonna need a huge amounts of data. You're gonna be on a lazy boy, listening to music, on your iPad, watching TV, and there's gonna be four passengers doing that, the exact same thing, and these cars are gonna be platooning with one another. So you can imagine the kind of data, the security, uh, so that a hacker can't hack into one of these platooning mm -hmm. cars and wreak havoc. Um, Chipset, software, all those brains and guts that are going in the car, uh, Israeli companies are really leading the, the edge of the world in this. Terrific. And in terms of your investment piece, uh, you know, listed, unlisted, what is your view and, and or why would you consider a mix? Why? why? Yeah, so, so when we approach the market, we're just very, very bullish on Israel. We think people are going to look, we're, we're on the side of Warren Buffett. We think people are going to look back in 10 or 15 years and say, how did I miss this? I'll give you a, just a quick anecdote. My partner, who I started this fund with, had done work in India for about a dozen years, but when he started, uh, he had a family office offer him to start a hedge fund. He started wanted to see them with $10 million. And he was 26 years old. He went around and talked to all the smart money people out there, people that are on TV and newspapers, and they said, India, that's a terrible idea, single country focus, that'll never work, geopolitical risk, India and Pakistan, mortal nuclear enemies, stay away, we're gonna save you some time. So we got talked out of it. Meanwhile, the Indian index at the time was at 3,000, finished last year at 30,000. That's the index. And he looks at Israel and says, very rarely do you get a second time in life of, of kind of a once-in-career opportunity. Yeah. Obviously, India, India and Israel, very different markets. Um, but that's the kind of opportunity. I think in the next 10 or 15 years, people will look back at Israel and say, how did I miss this? It's far away. It's, it's, it's not being, uh, a lot of people are paying attention to it. And, uh, and, and we think it creates a tremendous opportunity. And, and, and if the exposure to that, if you take it as an unlisted vehicle, obviously you know, you're locked in, illiquid, more difficult to get in and out versus li listed, um, what's the rationale for having a mix of that? Or? Right, so on the, on the listed side, very roughly there's about 700 Tel Aviv stock exchange companies, 100 Israeli companies listed on NASDAQ and 50 Israeli companies listed on random other exchanges, including Singapore, Australia. There's they some here? Came in London, about 20 companies by our last count. Who's in Australia? You know, who's listed uh, I have not spent a Without? lot of time okay. uh, focused on them. Some of them are very small at this stage, but uh, uh, I'm sure our partner that focuses on public companies could, could tell you all about them. Uh, so there's a, a total universe of about 850 companies. Uh, and these companies uh, trade at a tiny fraction of a valuation that the S&P 500 companies trade for. So one, there's a huge valuation arbitrage. Find the company in Israel, and then it either gets acquired by a US company at a US valuation, so it's not unusual to see Israeli companies acquired for 100 or 200% premium to where it's trading for in Israel. Or number two, it lists on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ and it uh, trades at two, three, four times the valuation in the U.S. that it does in Israel. So there's uh, a, a financial arbitrage that you can take advantage of. 
but also there's hundreds of companies uh, that uh, I had cited the statistics, one of the best performing stock markets in the world for 15 years, uh, just a lot of really exciting companies uh, on the publicly listed exchanges. It's certainly not as sexy as private companies, but you can get private equity and venture capital-like returns from the public markets in Israel. And it grows like an emerging market, um, but it has first world stability. And the final thing I would add is about three years ago, Israel was reclassified from an emerging market to a developed country. The country celebrated. They say, we arrived. It actually turned out to be awful for Israel because it meant all the emerging yeah. market managers dropped it and no one from the developed countries they went, picked they, it up. They went, from high, they went from primary school to high school, as we'd say. You know, they, they've gone from being the king of the school in the small area and then they're, you know, they're the tadpole in the big pond. It's um, absolutely so you're right. off the radar. So uh, that uh, impacted valuations as well. So there's some uh, real bargains to be had, and it's, it's, it's multiplied by the fact that the retail investor base in Israel is not very robust. It's not very sophisticated. It doesn't exist very much. So that just creates more opportunity to find some bargains. So what sort of valuations are you talking? Just ballpark? roughly. Oh, know, the same company that might trade for 20 times earnings in the States might be four or five times earnings in Israel. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, it, it makes quite a difference. The, your downside, uh, we believe, is much more mitigated when your entry point is so, so much lower of a valuation. Sure. You used the word uh, hedge fund a moment ago, and I think you'd probably describe most of your investments or investment style as hedge fund style. That makes a lot of people nervous. They you know, initially think of uh, Bernie Madoff. Um, it's kind of interesting. I was looking back and you know, the infancy of this podcast, but you know, the, the people that we've had on the, in the past, Hamish Douglas and Rhett Kessler, are all absolute return focused and actually in some guises would fall into the class of a hedge fund. How do you categorize a hedge fund and why do you see that as being of advantage? Yeah, generally speaking, I'm in agreement of all the naysayers of hedge funds. We believe the traditional mutual fund and hedge fund business model is toast. We see it anecdotally in the states uh, where co companies- So you're talking about the two and 20 type of fee structure. Two and 20 or even the mutual fund at just one and a quarter percent. Mm -hmm. um, their performance is awful and it has to be awful. They own the same stocks as the index funds but charge 20 times the fees of course your performance is gonna be terrible. Mm -hmm. So we see most of people's equity investments going to Vanguard or ETFs. Vanguard, I read, is getting a billion dollars of inflows every single day. But we're looking to create a firm of niche differentiated strategies, higher risk, but much higher return potential. And if 90% of somebody's investable assets are going to Vanguard or an ETF, we want to be that one-stop shop for the other 5 or 10%. So to really get outperformance, whether it's us or another firm, I think you have to be very niche very differentiated. And in our minds, it doesn't get more niche and differentiated than Israel. It's one of those markets where big investors just can't go there because it's a very small market. And many investors, whether it's BlackRock or Newberger or KKR, don't get out of bed unless they can put over a billion dollars to work. I tell our investors, if we're ever a billion dollars, the first thing you should do is take your money out. That is not what the opportunity is. It's a much smaller market. 
But if all you prioritize is performance and not how much money you manage, it's a great place to be. So I'm in agreement um, that generally speaking, hedge funds and mutual funds um, overpromise and underdeliver, and managers tend to get uh, rich off the management fees. Um, so it's important to find those funds that are completely aligned where the managers have a lot of skin in the game, uh, most of their life savings, that they have a lot more to lose personally than any of their investors, and number two, that uh, they're in a very niche uh, place or sector or theme, um, and it's not just playing an index. When you look at Israel, it's one of those countries that are two or three stocks are half of your index. So you can't really buy an ETF in Israel because you tell me how Checkpoint Software and Teva Pharmaceuticals did and I'll tell you how the Israeli Stock Exchange did. So if you don't want to own those two stocks, uh, you really have to invest in a, in, a, in a investment fund or a hedge fund to get exposure to the rest of the, the publicly listed or uh, private companies. Yeah, so you're talking more actively managed uh, taking positions uh, separate to the index. You, you talked about um, that niche sort of strategy and aiming for higher sort of returns. What, what sort of return expectation should clients have if they're looking to invest in Israel and in strategies that focus on growth stories out of Israel? Yeah, so uh, we, we, we think uh, for the, is, investing in Israel is a, a pain in the neck. You've got to fly 14 hours to Tel Aviv from Denver. You've got to rent a car. You've got to drive around the country. Uh, it's brutally hot most of the year. You have to negotiate with Israelis, which is a real pain if you've never done that. So for the stress, the sleepless nights, the aggravation, the Israeli stock market uh, opens about midnight Denver time on Saturday night because Sunday there is a work day. So you're really working uh, seven days a week if you include uh, the NASDAQ Israeli companies that you own. So for that stress, aggravation, and sleepless nights, if we can't put up north of 20 30% annual returns, it's not worth it. It's just not worth the stress. I'd rather buy a Vanguard account on the S&P 500 and make 10 11 12% a year. Um, but for that, uh, if you're willing to uh, stomach that, uh, you can put up north of 20, 30% annual returns, which I think is, 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 is pretty exciting, uh, especially when most places in the world to get those emerging market-like returns, you have to go to places like China. Well, good luck with that if anything goes wrong or have any uh, recourse. Well, that, that's a good point. The, the legislative regime uh, in China means that it's difficult to invest and there's just, you know, so many stories. In fact, you know, I had clients with a dinner with, uh, you know, probably the world's largest private equity manager the other day, and they said, you know, that had in private equity, you know, these guys uh, have a market cap of $23 billion. They've made a lot of global investments. He said, we've had three out-and-out -out failures. Two of them were in China. He said, we just don't invest there anymore. You know, legislative, you know, the, the lack of a clarity, you know, they've got problems. What's the legislative regime in Israel like? It's very first world. Uh, it's much more closely aligned to the U.S. If you think of India and China on one extreme, I'd put the U.S. and Israel on the total other extreme. So Israel is very unique in that you can get emerging market returns, but with first world stability. You have 
the debt to GDP that's been going down, you have record employment, a credit rating that's recently been upgraded, a strong currency. Uh, so really on any uh, metric, uh, it's been a robust economy and I think it's only going to strengthen uh, with the innovation that's coming out of there. In terms of conflict and stability, you know, a lot of people will think first off when you talk to them about Israel, you know, it's right in the middle of and has been you know, since, since uh, for a long, long time, um, a real, you know, hot spot of uh, tension um, and political and geopolitical instability. Um, how has that played out from an investment perspective? You know, is that reality or not? Yeah, it's, it's always on the top of everybody's mind. Um, local news in Israel makes international news. If that happened in a place like Chicago or most cities, people would be terrified. So before we got involved and started this fund, and I put my life savings and my partners put their life savings in this fund, the first thing we looked at is the impact of geopolitical situations on the stock market. Because it does no good to make nice returns if you're just gonna lose it all the first signs of a war or conflict. We looked back at every war and conflict going back 40 years, and as it turns out, in the 30 days leading up to that war or conflict, the average drop in the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange is about 4%, almost nothing. The average gain one year after that war or conflict is 27%, and the average gain two years later is 48%. And in zero cases in the last 40 years, you call any war or conflict, was this Tel Aviv Stock Exchange down one or two years later. So what it tells us is yes, it scares everybody away. That's why there aren't the thousands of funds and investors in Israel that are in the United States or Silicon Valley, uh, but it's all priced in. Uh, we go back to the Gaza war of uh, a few years ago uh, in the summer, and I remember we'd have investors call us up and say, oh my gosh, what are we down, 30% this month, 50%? Just tell me, I can handle it. And we said, actually, it's one of our strongest months. Not only is this Tel Aviv stock exchange up, but we're up as well. And I remember also, it, it, it takes a lot of getting used to, but having a conference call with a company uh, in the north, and then at the same time I'm on the call asking them questions, I get a CNN alert that missiles and rockets are being fired into the north of Israel. And I said, I, I don't know, maybe we should reschedule this call. It sounds like there's some rockets right in your area. And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah we're, in, we're in the bomb shelter. But anyway, on to your next question. Wow. So it's just... So it, no one's going to argue with their resilience, right? Yeah, it, it's a little bit like uh, somebody that lives in San Francisco uh, with earthquakes. Now, if I'm from Denver and I'm in San Francisco and there's an earthquake, I'm running around the room like a chicken with my head cut off, screaming probably. But mm -hmm. if you live in San Francisco, you just sit down, you wait for it to pass, and it's business as usual. That's what Israel is like with uh, the geopolitical risk. Yet the geopolitical threat and the constant living under threat is what creates all this innovation and these opportunities in the first place. Justin, fantastic uh, for taking us through that opportunity in Israel. Really appreciate your time. Enjoy your stay in Australia. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. You have been listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the monthly podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.